We're in Jeremiah chapter 52. It happens to be the last study, but who cares? Uh, We're going to look at all 34 verses of this chapter. The topic in this chapter, the last thing Zedekiah sees before he is blinded is the murder of his sons by their Babylonian captors. The title of our message, Don't It Make My Blind Eyes Blue. Tough crowd this morning, I can tell. (laughs) So I'll have nothing to do with my personal exhortations to you in a few minutes. But anyway, (laughs) let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you uh, and appreciate the body of Christ and this particular gathering of believers here in the sanctuary, over in the fellowship hall, out in the courtyard. Lord, we're here by your invitation. We're here to have an appointment with you corporately and individually. And we believe by the Holy Spirit who indwells most of us and who is working on the rest of us and who is here in this place that your word will not return void but that it will accomplish a great purpose, the greatest of which is to reveal Jesus Christ in his glory and his love for us. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said amen. One of the most inspiring quotes to come out of World War II was Winston Churchill's promise, and I quote, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. More recently, never give up, never surrender was the creed of Captain Taggart, commander of the NSEA Protector. It inspired his crew and the Thermians to defeat the evil warlord Saurus as he sought to invade the earth back in 1999. It's the movie Galaxy Quest, which I think is a documentary. I'm not recommending it. I never recommend movies, so if you watch it, you're on your own. Whether in fact or in fiction, we don't think too highly of surrendering. It seems to smack of defeat. Yet we robustly sing as Christians, I surrender all, as if it's the easiest thing in the world to surrender everything to God. Well, it's not easy. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I know you'll want to surrender more and more until it is said of you, I surrender all. Surrender plays a big part in the last chapter of Jeremiah. Two of Judah's kings are brought before us, Zedekiah and before him Jehoiachin. One of them needed, or excuse me, heeded Jeremiah's counsel from the Lord to surrender to Babylon. The other did not. For those kings in that moment, surrendering to Babylon was surrendering to God. That was God's will for them. One of them ran from surrender. The other walked in surrender. You can guess already that the one who ran paid the heavier price. The one who walked in surrender, well, it wasn't easy, but it was blessed. We're going to talk about our own surrendering to God with this as the background, and therefore I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, run from surrender to God and you will be subjugated. Number two, walk in surrender to God and you will be sustained. Let's take a look at the runner in verses one through 30. Now, Jeremiah had encouraged the nation of Judah to repent from her many sins. His ministry spanned an incredible 40 years. God had been trying to reach his wayward people for several hundred years prior to Jeremiah. They refused to repent and turn back to God from idols, so he determined to discipline them by making them subject to the nation of Babylon. God determined that they would be lost 
forever if he didn't step in with the severe discipline of bringing them into captivity to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah urged the Jews to surrender to Babylon because that was God's will. For example, back in chapter 21, verse 9, you might remember Jeremiah told them, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine or plague, but whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. Zedekiah was not rightfully a king of Judah. He was an appointed governor. He was ruling at the time of the final siege against Jerusalem, and he was refusing to surrender. To make matters worse, he ran trying to escape the Babylonians, but as we've said, he was really running from surrendering to God. And so in verse one, we read, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah, obviously a different Jeremiah, of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Yes, the Lord was angry at their sin. At their worst, they were sacrificing their infant children to Molech in strange and sexually perverted idol worship. It's enough to make anyone angry. God determined it would require a time of captivity away from their land to turn their hearts back to him. Zedekiah not only refused to surrender, he tried instead to escape. Verse four, now came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. If you come on Wednesday nights, you know we studied the book of Lamentations. It was a really difficult five weeks because of the description of the conditions, the real conditions in the city of Jerusalem during this siege. Where it says here that the famine became so severe there was no food. Well, there wasn't any food, but there were dead bodies. And the people resorted to what we would call necro-cannibalism. They ate the bodies of the dead in order to stay alive. They didn't have to go through that siege. They should have surrendered. That's all they had to do. And they had a prophet, a tested, true prophet, telling them what to do, but they resisted God's will. It shows us how really hard it can be to surrender, how much our nature is against surrender in the spiritual realm. Uh, all of us need to make note of the fact that we don't like to surrender parts of our life to God. Verse seven, then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around. And they went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king, they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. He pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, 
And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. First he was bereft of his loved ones, then he was blinded, then he was bound for the rest of his life. I'm using the word subjugate, and it means to bring under dominion or to bring under control. It's a very simple illustration that we're getting here in the life of Zedekiah, really. If you run from surrendering to God, thinking you're going to be free, you end up being brought under the dominion of other forces. Emotionally bereft, spiritually blinded, physically bound, you will be a prisoner. Now hold that thought for just a minute because we need to read a large chunk of chapter chronicling the details of the fall of Jerusalem. And while I read it, answer this question, why go into so much detail, especially about the implements of worship? Here it goes. Verse 12, now in the fifth month, on the 10th day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord in the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The basins, the firepans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, the 12 bronze bulls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits, a measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference, and its thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. A capital of bronze was on it, and the height of one capital was five cubits, and a network in pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates all around on the network were 100. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem, 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away, carried away captive, excuse me, of the Jews, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. 
Jeremiah, by the way, did not write chapter 52. Chapter 51 ended saying, thus far are the words of Jeremiah. We're not sure who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, but obviously they were guided and directed to give great detail. Why so much detail? especially about the articles and implements of worship? Well, for one reason, God had promised that he would return his people to their land and reinstitute their worship. And so hearing this inventory, in the midst of all of this destruction, you've just been taken captive, your nation has crumbled, the northern kingdom has been gone for a couple of hundred years, Uh, everything seems finished and burnt and done, And then God says, now you're going to Babylon and here's an inventory of everything that the Babylonians have taken uh, and much of this is coming back because I've also promised you that I would restore you and restore your worship. And so it's a moment of hope. The book doesn't have a happy ending. Chapter 52 is not, they lived happily ever after, but it's more like, and they all lived hopefully ever after with the hope in their hearts that God was faithful who had promised and that he would bring them back. Now, back to Zedekiah, we left him bereft and blinded and bound, rotting away in prison for the rest of his life. This is how I must appear to God in those areas of my life when I refuse to surrender to him. He sees that that's what I am heading for. He's trying to help me, he's trying to get me to avoid all of those pitfalls, But instead, I refuse to surrender. He has grace for me to be conformed into the image of Jesus, but I run away pursuing my own course. I think I'm exercising my freedom, and I guess I am, but I'm only really free to choose who I will serve, and if it's not God, then I will never be satisfied. As a fundamental lesson just in in spiritual life, Bob Dylan said it in a song, you gotta serve somebody. It comes right out of the book of Romans. Whoever you yield yourself to serve, that becomes your master. You're either gonna serve God or you're going to serve the flesh and the world and the devil. There are no other masters. Uh, And so when I refuse to surrender to God, by surrendering some area of my life, then I am, I'm being mastered by these other passions. And I might, end up literally subjugated. Plenty of backsliders have found themselves bereft of family, blinded or otherwise physically debilitated and bound by things like addiction or even prison. Some of you have this testimony at some level that you pursued some sin or some disobedience or some area you refused to surrender and the next thing you know, you had lost your family. Maybe you had actually lost your physical freedom. Now this morning, I'm not really talking about a small, secret, unknown corner of my heart that has yet to be submitted to Christ's lordship, things that I'm, I'm not aware of. Although we need to ask the Lord to make us aware of those kinds of things. I'm not saying they're insignificant, but I'm really kind of camping out on bigger things. I'm talking about us as believers rejecting God's clear commands, clear directives, and the boundaries that he sets. I'm talking about when believers willfully sin and think that God's not going to hold them accountable or do anything about it because they're his child. I'm talking about things that we can relate to like an unbiblical divorce, fornication, adultery, covetousness, things like that, that unfortunately are, if you believe the statistics, 
are rampant in most churches. Unbiblical divorce, fornication, adultery, covetousness. Uh, there's a lot of that in the body of Christ today. Maybe there always has been. I, I, you know, I don't wanna, I'm not a prophet saying that we're the worst generation or anything like that, but these are the things I'm talking about that Christians just kind of blow off temporarily. Don't allow sin to destroy you. Surrender to God in all those areas by simply submitting to his will as revealed by his word. I've often said this and it's true, people are always worried about what is the will of God for my life. In most areas that are really important in our life, God has revealed his will. And we don't need to worry about it. He's given us the... uh, injunctions to remain pure and to stay married and to avoid covetousness and things like this. Uh, Certainly in in what we would call smaller but important areas of our life, we need to pray and seek the Lord. You know, where should, you know, should I do this or that kind of a thing. But I'm talking about these big areas where Christians seem to be blowing it today. Why don't we surrender? Well, because it isn't easy to walk with God in surrender. And as we close out the chapter, as we look at Jehoiachin, we're gonna see that walking in surrender is no walk in the park. And people think, hey, I am not going to walk with God. I'm going to go my own way. Because even walking in surrender has its difficulties. And so, um, verses 31 through 34, walk in surrender to God and you will be sustained. Now, chronologically, Jehoiachin preceded Zedekiah He was only 18 years old when he became king of Judah. He only reigned for 100 days. We talked about him long time back in our studies. He was the last direct heir of David to sit on the throne, therefore the last true king before the future return of Jesus Christ as king in his second coming. He's also called Jeconiah and Coniah in other passages and in other translations. Now Jehoiachin heeded God's word and he surrendered to Babylon. At first, on the surface, doesn't seem to be much difference between him and Zedekiah. He too was imprisoned. But his imprisonment, excuse me, and subsequent treatment was entirely different than Zedekiah. So let's read about it beginning in verse 31. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. If I'm Jehoiachin, my attitude maybe is, thanks a lot, God. I surrendered as you asked, and then I spent the next 37 years in a Babylonian prison, what good did it do me to surrender to you? Well, I don't mean to sound callous, but if you're Jehoiachin, your children weren't slaughtered before your eyes, you weren't immediately blinded, and it doesn't seem you were bound all the time. I'm not saying that prison was a cakewalk, but those were the times in which he found himself as the king of Judah. Those were the times he was born into. There was nothing he could do about the hundreds of years of disobedience that his people had been involved with and the moment in time that he found himself in where God said, you guys are going into captivity. Now, God didn't destroy him the way uh, he could have, but it still, it was a rough time for him. It was really, though, a best-case scenario for a subdued king. 
normally they'd be brutalized and then murdered. You know, you wanted to be king until you lost, then you didn't want to be king. Because, you know, the, the way to deal with kings that lost, it, 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 you know, they did, they tore their tongues out, they put their eyes out, they killed their families in front of them, they flayed them open alive, they burned them alive, they cut their heads off, they hung them on poles for everybody to see, the ravens, you know, that kind of thing. And so, if you're Jehoiachin, and you obey God, and you surrender to Babylon, and all they do is put you in prison, you're in fat city. That's a best case scenario. Let me be direct. This is what we're talking about. I always use marriage as an example because it's something that we can all relate to. If your marriage is less than ideal, it's not an excuse to refuse to surrender to God's will. It's not a reason to run from your marriage. You need to stay and you need to walk with God. You say you feel trapped. I've had people tell me it feels, I feel like I'm in a prison married to this person. Well, those are God's walls and bars. He wants you to experience his grace right there. That presupposes that you should never be in a difficult situation. Hey, I'm a Christian and I I should never feel trapped. I should never feel imprisoned. I should never feel any suffering. Certainly not in, in my marriage. Well, here's the problem. Most of the time, people are looking to be happy. Do you want to be happy? I I want to be happy. I consider myself a happy person. I like being happy. I want you to be happy too. But happiness isn't the goal of the Christian life. God says there is a joy, a deep-seated spiritual joy in obedience. Happiness can come, but obedience and the joy that it brings are to be preferred. There is a joy in simple obedience to God regardless of my circumstances. If I find no joy in obeying God, then that is the real problem. My marriage isn't the problem. My job isn't the problem. My children aren't the problem. My church isn't the problem. My blank isn't the problem, whatever you want to insert in there. If I cannot find joy in obeying God in the midst of that, that's the problem. God says, I, do you ever think I maybe designed this situation or at least am using this situation to show you how to find joy in spite of these things? Because joy is what? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. It's something God and God alone can produce in me, but it comes from obedience. And the problem with Christianity today is that we prefer happiness to joy. And we think that if we're happy, we will find joy rather than if we have joy, we will find happiness. But joy comes from God as we obey him. Happiness comes from happenings. And those happenings we have no control over, those people we have no control over, we need to get our hearts right before God. You and I are the problem. It's our walk with God, not our spouse, not our job, not our church, not anyone or anything else. It's us. Because the Lord is saying, I am enough for you. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Look to me. Look to Jesus. Jesus surrendered himself completely to the will of the Father by coming as a man. He laid aside his prerogatives of deity and offered his life as a sacrifice for mankind. 
Every descendant of Adam benefits from the work accomplished by Jesus on the cross, and especially you who believe in him as Savior. The New Testament says it was for the joy set before Jesus of obeying his Father to save you and I that he endured the cross. Jesus said there's a joy set before me. It is obeying my Father to the death so that I might rise from the dead and save the lost race of Adam. And because of that, I can endure the pain and the suffering and the shame of the cross because I put joy ahead of happiness. You think Jesus was happy on the cross? What if Jesus thought like so many people that you know? What if in the garden he said, Father, I'm not happy. I haven't had a very happy life. I've lived 30 you know, pretty obscure years. The last three years have been rough. I'm, I'm down to like 11 disciples and they're all gonna scatter except for John when I get crucified. I've decided I'm not happy in this situation. And so I'm gonna do something else. I'm just gonna leave this. It, it sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But that's how you and I get to thinking sometimes when we're complaining to God about the situation that we're in, it's like, Lord, I'm not happy. I didn't sign up for this. When I got saved and you forgave me my sins and promised me I would go to heaven and be like Jesus, that was cool. But I didn't know it would be tough. I didn't know I'd have to endure that there would be affliction. And then you hear Paul saying to you, your light affliction is but for a moment. It works for you in, a, in an exceeding weight of glory. And there's that struggle that we have. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he hasn't done in greater measure. Besides, Jehoiachin's incarceration wasn't the whole story of his life. Verse 32, and he spoke kindly to him, gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death all the days of his life. A change in administration in Babylon brought a sudden and unexpected change to Jehoiachin. Suddenly he was elevated, exalted, treated like a king again. He enjoyed a blessed retirement. His name, by the way, has been discovered by archeologists on cuneiform tablets in excava excavations in Babylon verifying this story. Not that we need the verification, but I think it's cool that it's there. Now, this doesn't mean everyone who suffers a little or for a little while will be released from it to coast through the rest of their life. We want to think that as soon as we have an attitude adjustment or learn our lesson, that the trial will suddenly end. Not always, not even very often. But even if suffering is my constant lot in this life, one day I will sit with the king of kings around his banqueting table and I will do it for eternity. Surrendering is not a defeat. It's your only means for spiritual victory. It was how Jesus conquered sin and death and the devil, and it's how we are more than conquerors through life's meager ups and mostly downs. You have really only two paths. You can be Zedekiah and run. You can be Jehoiachin and surrender. In either case, you're going to spend some time on earth in less than desirable circumstances, but one imprisonment is much preferred to the other because you are with Jesus Christ. You're, you're like Paul in the Philippian jail. You're like Joseph in the Egyptian prison. You're like those in Hebrews 11 who wandered the earth as pilgrims and strangers. 
If you're a Jehoiachin, it won't matter because Jesus is there with you, sustaining you through both buffetings and blessings until you awake in his likeness and look full in his wonderful face.